Hello, this is Aaron. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Church Discussions Podcast. I hope you're having a great day and a great week. I want to spend a few minutes just saying thank you to the people who have listened to my first two episodes on this podcast. I'm truly blessed by you guys. I'm blessed by all the posts on Instagram and all the text messages and all the feedback that I've received from you guys. I just want to say thank you so much for that. And uh, today I'm going to talk about who God is and what God is like. This is a, an extremely important topic. I believe that every person, every Christian should understand what God is like. We should learn about what God is like according to the scriptures. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 22. This is verse 36 through 38. This is a very familiar passage of scripture. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 38. And it says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, I want to explain what's going on here in this passage of Scripture really quickly. Jesus is basically, he's being asked a a very important question by uh, some some people who are actually trying to trap him. I believe it's a lawyer here in this Scripture, uh, along with the Pharisees. They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. And they ask him this question. They say, which is the the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds and and he points out, that the main and most important thing is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, there's three very important things that are pointed out in that scripture. Obviously, it's one commandment, but there's three important things. He says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind? I want to focus on just the the first two parts of that. What does it mean to love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul? What that means is we are to love the Lord God with everything that is within us. We are to love the Lord God with the most deepest, most inner part of our hearts, the deepest part of us, with all of our passions, with all of our emotions. We are to love the Lord God wholly and fully, from the deepest part of us. We are to love the Lord God with all of our emotions and all of our heart. That's what that scripture is saying right there. Now let's move on to that next part. And it says, with all your mind. What does that mean to love the Lord God with all your mind? The Greek word here for mind is actually the word dianoia. And the word simply means comprehension. It means intellect or understanding. So when the scripture says that you are to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, the scripture is saying that you are to love the Lord God out of all your passions, all your emotions, out of a genuine, deep love for Him, and you are to love the Lord God with all of your comprehension, with all of your mind. So the reason I bring up that scripture and I start this episode with that passage of scripture is because many people, what they do is they do not love the Lord God with all of their mind. They don't put their mind to work when it comes to learning about God and his character. They don't study the scriptures to find out what God is like. 
There are many people, what they do is they love the Lord God with their emotions. They love the Lord God with, with, you know, with what they feel, with their feelings, with their experiences, but they never put their mind to work to understand the character of God. And this is what this very episode is about. I'm going to talk about three main things when it comes to God. I'm going to talk about the holiness of God. I'm going to talk about the sovereignty of God. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is the aseity of God. Now, if you don't know what the word aseity means, I encourage you to research it and look it up, but I'm going to explain to you in detail what it means. So allow me just to give you some reasons why I believe it's important to study the characteristics of God, the attributes of God. Some reasons why it's important to study God is if we understand God better, then we will understand prayer better. If we understand and learn, a God, learn about God better, then our worship will be better. Our worship will be more richer and more meaningful. If we have a better understanding of God and His character, we'll be able to understand the gospel better and the necessity of salvation if, if we understand God's character better, then we'll be able to understand, uh, we'll be able to view preaching and teaching and church and ministry better. If we understand God better, we'll be able to understand the very purpose and reason that we exist. So I believe that these are some very important things that, that'll help us to realize why it's important to learn about God and His attributes and His character I want to tell you that, that you must put your mind to work when it comes to learning about Him. You cannot just love God out of simplicity. And yes, there is a certain season in every Christian's life where there is a, a season of simplicity. But I encourage you that, that eventually you should desire to learn about God and His attributes and what He's like. And we find that out through His Word and through His Scriptures. Now, I do want to make it clear to you that we cannot understand every single thing about God. We can't understand, understand God fully. God is not limited. God is infinite. But we are limited. We are finite. God is greater than our understanding. God is eternal. Us as human beings, we cannot understand an eternal God fully, to, to the fullest. The fact that He is too complex for my brain to handle, it, it truly it makes me want Him more. I honestly believe that if we could completely understand God, then He wouldn't be worth worshiping. The fact that He is too great for my brain, is, it makes me yearn after Him more. It makes me desire Him more. It makes me search after Him even more. So I want you to understand that God is great. That God is bigger than us. And we must have a high view of God. We can't have a low view of God. We have to understand that God is to be lifted up. And man is to be brought down. The Bible is clear on this. The scriptures are clear that man is sinful and man always fails, but God is perfect and mighty and higher than us. So we must have a high view of God. Now, there are many people who agree with this statement of having a high view of God. 
but there are implications of certain things that that people say that don't reveal that that they have a high view of God. What do I mean by that? If you truly understand God according to how he's revealed himself in his scriptures, you'll look at God with a high view. When you go through suffering and situations, you'll realize that God is big in your situation. When you do church and when you preach and when you do ministry, you'll realize that God is great, that God is sovereign, that God is the one who is working in the hearts of people through the preaching of the word. When you understand God's character, when you look at God in a high view, you'll understand that we don't have to manipulate situations to make them work. We don't have to try to work things out in our own fleshly, strategic methods. We'll understand that God is sovereign and that God is great and that God works all things out. So this is what I mean by we should have a high view of God. We should never lift up man. You see, there are many people, what they try to do is they have a good heart behind it, but what they do is they'll preach messages and sermons to try to lift up the esteem of people in their church. They'll encourage people and they'll write worship songs that will encourage people. But what what they're really doing a lot of times is, is they're basically encouraging man that they can do it on their own without God, that they can do all things without God. And the scriptures are clear that God is to be lifted up and man is always sinful. Man is wicked. God is good and man is bad. So without God, we can do nothing. We have to understand this. You see, I want to give an analogy to explain this better. You see, me and my daughter, I love spending time with my daughter. A lot of times what me and my daughter would do is I'll take her to the park. And what we'll do is we'll go to the playground. Now, obviously, right now, due to COVID, everything is closed. But a lot of times what we'll do is I'll take my daughter to the playground. What she'll do is she'll jump on the slides. She'll get on the swings and she'll go to the teeter-totter. If you don't know what a teeter-totter is, I encourage you to Google it. Look it up. If you have kids, it's likely that you know what a teeter-totter or a seesaw is. But basically what she does is she'll run to the seesaw, she'll jump on one end and she'll say, Daddy, get on the other side, jump on the other side. So right away, what I do is I run over there and I jump on the other side. And sure enough, because I'm bigger than her, she goes flying up in the air. Now, here's the thing about us is if we view God in a high manner, We cannot view man in a high manner. Man cannot be lifted up along with God. We should view God as high and man as low. They can both never be lifted up high. God is the one to to be glorified in all things. That is our very purpose. That is the very purpose for our existence is to glorify God. It's not to glorify ourselves. I want you to take a look at this passage of scripture here. Uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, I'm not going to read the full passage. I'm only going to take a look at one verse in particular. If you'd like, you can go ahead and research it. It's in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I'm just going to read uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. This is the NASB version. It says, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. 
and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, if you don't know this story, if you're not familiar with the story, basically, previous to this chapter, uh, God floods the earth, right? And Noah, what he does is he gets in the ark and he takes all the animals into the ark. Now, God floods the earth with, with water. And after that, eventually, the waters begin to come down. After that, God tells Noah and the people, he says, I want you to multiply and scatter th throughout the earth. He tells them, I want you to fill the earth. So when you get to this very chapter, chapter 11, the people, what they do is they intentionally decide to disobey God. They say, they say, let us make, a, make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, what the people were doing is they were trying to make a name for themselves. They were disobeying God and they were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to compete with God for His glory. You see, they looked at God with a very low view and they looked at man with a high view. And because of that, God, God scattered them. Because of that, God confuse their languages you see the book of first corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 it says whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 verse i'm sorry chapter 42 verse 8 it says i am the lord that is my name i will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images you see, God makes it clear that he doesn't share his glory with anyone at all. God is to be glorified in all that we do. We should never view ourselves as if we deserve anything. God is the one who deserves everything. God is the one who deserves glory and praise. Okay, so allow me to move on here. I want to talk about the first thing. It's the holiness of God. And you can turn with your Bible to me to Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 through 9 this is the nasb version and it says for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts now the scripture makes it clear that god is bigger than us that god is higher than us but the main thing I want you to understand here in this point is God is holy. Now, what do I mean by saying God is holy? What does that mean exactly? If you don't know what the word holy means, the word holy means cut above or cut apart. The word holy simply means separate or to be set apart. You see, many of us, when we think of the word holy, we think of uh, God being morally pure, which is true. God is definitely morally pure. But that's not the definition of God being holy. When we say God is holy, we are saying that God is separate, that God is set apart, that God is unique, that he is distinct. We are saying that God is completely other. 
When we're saying God is holy, we're saying that there is nobody like God. So moral purity is an example of that. But it's not the full definition of God when it comes to holiness. You see, God is completely different because he is morally pure. God is completely other or unique or distinct because of his triune nature, because of his omnipresence, because of his sovereignty. You see, there is no one like God at all. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, it says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You see, there are many people, what they do is they try to compare God to us. They make statements like, would a father really do that? They make statements like, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. And I want you to understand that God is not like us. God is above us, beyond us. God is eternal. And we are limited by our human understanding. We're limited in our ways of thinking. So God sees the full picture when we only simply see from our own small perspective. So my point here is you can't say God is like anything. There is no one like God. Let's take a look at another example here. The word holy is used in this scripture. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, again, I want you to understand what the scripture is saying. I'll read it again. It says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you look in the original language, the Greek language here, the, the word hagios is used for the word holy. And that word means to be set apart or separate. It's a very similar word to the word sanctify. It also means set apart or to be separate or to be unique. So in the scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, when he says, you shall be holy for I am holy, God is saying that you should be separate that you should be set apart for a special purpose, that you should be consecrated just the way I am separate, just the way I am set apart and unique. So that's what that scripture means when he says that we are to be holy as he is holy. Also, if you look at other scriptures, any scriptures that use the word holy, you know, this very idea is proven. If you think of scriptures where they say, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. What does that mean? That's one of the Ten Commandments if you don't know that. When he says that you are to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, he's saying that you are to separate that day. You are to set, set apart that day. You are to consecrate that day for a day of rest. God is not saying that the day should be you know, morally pure, even though we should always be morally pure. But that's not what God means when he says you are to to keep the Sabbath holy, he's saying to separate it. Another example of this is if you notice in the story of Moses in the burning bush, what does God tell Moses from the burning bush? He tells Moses, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. Now, what does that mean? What God is telling Moses is, hey, take off your sandals. You're, st you're, you're standing in an atmosphere that is unique. You're standing in an atmosphere that is set apart. God is saying, look, at this is a very unique moment. There is nothing like this. 
It's a very special and set apart moment. So take off your sandals. So that's what God means when he says, remove your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Let's take a look at another passage of scripture here. It's Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to send, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent you. You see, this scripture is a very familiar scripture. If you know about the scripture with Moses and God, the scripture reveals God's eternal and unique nature. Notice that he says, I am who I am. I imagine asking God and saying, God, when I go to, when I go to Egypt, who do, who do I tell them sent me? How do I make them understand that you're the one who's sending me? What, how do I explain to them what you're like? And God responds and says, Moses, I am who I am. God is basically telling Moses, I am eternal. I am unique. I am different and there is no one like me. I am holy. So that's what God is telling Moses here. He's saying that there is no one like me, that you cannot compare me to anyone or anything at all. Now, I do want to make it clear to you that the scriptures reveal that there is one person that is like God. As a matter of fact, he is God in the flesh. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. So if you want to know what God is like, we are to examine and observe the life of Jesus through the Gospels. So that is the holiness of God. I want to move on now to the sovereignty of God. Now, what does the word sovereignty mean? The word sovereign means to have complete power, control, or authority over something. So when we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that God is powerful over all things, that God has authority over every single thing that exists in the earth. Now, I want you to understand that if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. God is all-powerful and almighty. God can do all things. God can do anything, anything possible. God can do it, whether possible or impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. If you take a look at Job chapter 42, verse 2, it says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What does the word thwarted mean? It means to prevent something from happening, to prevent from accomplishing something. So what Job is telling God is he's saying, God, I know that you're sovereign. He's saying, God, I know that you can do anything at all and nobody can prevent you from doing what you're going to do. 
If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He predestines and appoints things. And it's all for his purpose. And though we cannot understand that, we should trust it. We should trust in the counsel of his will. We should realize that God is, is, is wise in all things, that God sees all things. He knows all things, past, present, and future. But us, we are limited. So we cannot look at God and say, I would do things differently because God knows all things. The book of Psalms, chapter 135, verse 6 through 7, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. You see, God is in control of nature. He's in control of the weather. God is in control of everything that happens in our lives. God is sovereign over COVID. God is sovereign over everything that happens and exists. And here's the thing is many of us understand this when it comes to God. If you notice, when you pray, you go before God to make your requests and your petitions known to him. You go with the understanding that God has power to answer those prayers, whatever it may be. But see, you see, here's the thing is subconsciously, we have this idea that God limits his sovereignty, that God limits his power as if God gives us the full sovereignty and full power. And I want to tell you that God is, God does not limit himself in any way. If that were the case, then this is not the God of the Bible. You see, the God of the Bible is sovereign over everything that ever happens and exists. God is even sovereign over the enemy himself. This is the crazy thing. Many, many people don't understand this or even realize this. This is evident in the book of Job. Let's take a look at Job chapter 1 verse 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. You notice how the devil has to ask God for permission here in the scripture? You see, the devil doesn't just go and do things. He has to ask God for his permission. God is sovereign over the devil. There are many of us, we, we look at the devil as if he is equal to God, as if he is on the same playing field as God, as if he is on the same platform and God and the devil are both wrestling back and forth. And sometimes God loses and sometimes the devil loses. No, this is a false idea. God is sovereign and powerful. He has authority over the devil. He has authority over all things. Let's take a look at another scripture here that also supports that. This is the story about Paul and his issue with a thorn in his flesh. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 8. It says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, if you look at verse 9, it says, And he, he's talking about Jesus there, 
He says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. So notice here, I want to explain what's going on here in the scripture. Paul is, is saying, he says, I have an issue. Now, many, many Bible scholars believe that it's a physical issue. That he has some type of health issue or he has an issue with his eye or his leg or something like that. But what, what Paul is saying is, when he's saying I have a thorn in my flesh, he's saying that I have an issue here. And the issue is there because a messenger of Satan came to torment me. Notice I said that God is sovereign over Satan. So the scripture says that Satan came to torment him. And after that, Paul goes to the Lord in prayer and, and asked him three times to remove this thorn. He asked him three times to bring healing. And the Lord responds and says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. So you notice that the devil plays a part in God's will in Paul's sanctification. So the devil cannot do anything without God's permission, without God's sovereign permission. Many times we like to just rebuke the devil left and right. And I do believe that there is a place for spiritual warfare where we should battle and, and speak against the enemy. But let me tell you that the enemy is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. God is the one who is sovereign over all things. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 37 through 39. It says, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Notice what the scripture is saying. It's saying God is the one who speaks things into existence. It's not man. God is the one who is sovereign. Can any man complain about this? Although we don't understand it, we shall trust in what God is doing throughout the earth. Although we don't understand it at this very moment, we eventually will get some type of understanding when we enter heaven. So it is the Lord God who is sovereign over everything that ever happens. Now I want to move on to my last idea here, the last point. The last thing I want to talk about is the aseity of God. Now what does that word aseity mean? When I say the aseity of God, I am saying that God is self-existent. He is self-dependent. God is self-sufficient. God needs nothing from anyone. God has no needs whatsoever. Anything that he does need is within himself. You see, God is limited. He is a limited source of goodness. You see, us, we are finite, but God is infinite. So there is no limit to God. Everything that exists within our universe is made up of three things. They are made up of time, space, and material. You see, and God is, God is the one who initiated time, space, and matter. God is the author of time, space, and matter. God is not contained or bound by time, space, and matter the way we are. God is never late for anything. There is nothing that can hold God back or, or stop Him from accomplishing His plans. 
So he is the one who initiated these three things. And this is evident here in Genesis chapter one, verse one. It says in the beginning, you notice there's time. It says God created the heavens. You see there's space and the earth. There's matter. You see, God is the one who spoke these three things into existence. So God is not held, held down by these three things. He is the one who is controlling these three, three things. He is the one who is sovereign over these three things. So when we go to the Lord in prayer, we can, we can understand that God can do anything in all things, that we serve a big and mighty God. You see, this is the difference between us and God. God has no needs, but we have so many needs. You see, we need food, we need water, we need oxygen, we need sleep, we need companionship, and we need a savior to save us from our sin. You see, but God doesn't need any of that. God needs nothing at all. I remember years ago, somebody asking me the question, they said, why did God create us? They said, they said did, did God create us because he was lonely? And I wanna make it clear to you that God was never lonely. God never had a need. God does not need you and he does not need me. Within the church context, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you for ministry. There are so many preachers that try to preach this idea that God needs you. That if, if you don't step it up, you know, people are not going to get saved. I want to make it clear to you that God will accomplish his own purposes. He does not need us. He can accomplish anything in his own strength in his own might and power. Let's take, a, let's take a look at another scripture here. This is the book of Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. It says, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You see, it's saying that God created everything. God needs no one or nothing. God is the one who determines our boundaries when it comes to our habitation, when it comes to our way of life. If you take a look at the next, actually two verses down in verse 28 in that same passage, it says, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. You see, God has no need, but we have many needs. And God is the main source of everything that we need. If we need food, we go to God and we ask him. If we need help in our family, we go to God and we ask him. If we need help in our ministries, in our church services, in our sermons, in our day-to-day -day life, we are to rely and depend on God. He is the only one that we can depend on. He is the only one that we can go to when it comes to, to our needs. Now, I want to make it clear to you that we don't go to God just for the needs. We go to God for who he is as the holy, sovereign, and awesome and perfect God that He is. But let me tell you, when you place God at the very center of your life, all your needs are taken care of. If we would just seek God in all His righteousness, all other things will be taken care of. Okay, so I want to go ahead and just end it there. 
Once again, I want to recap really quickly the three things that I mentioned. God is holy. That means he's unique, separate, other, different, distinct. The second thing is God is sovereign. That means he has power and authority over all things that ever happen and exist. And the third thing is God is self-sufficient or self-existent. He has no need outside of himself, but we need him. And I want to go ahead and close with this last passage of scripture. It's the Lord's Prayer, if you're familiar with this passage. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. It says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The reason I bring up that scripture is because these three things that I pointed out to you are affirmed in these verses. What do I mean? Let's read it again. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean, hallowed be your name? It means the Lord's name is holy. Keep his name holy. Then if you look at verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does verse 10 mean? What does he say when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done? He's saying, God, be sovereign on earth just the same way that you're sovereign in heaven. Then if you take a look at that very last verse, verse 11, it says, give us this day our daily bread. You see, this scripture affirms that that God doesn't need us, but we need him. That all our needs are found in him. That he's the source of every single thing that we need in this life. So that was this episode. I hope you were blessed by it. I hope it was clear. Again, if you have any questions, feel free to send me a text message or message me on Instagram. And I encourage you to share this. uh, Send it to somebody. Share it with your connect groups. And give me some feedback on this. Thank you so much once again for listening. God bless.